1805, and I want you to picture the United States Senate chamber as it would have looked then. Forget what you've seen on CNN, forget what you've seen on C-SPAN. You basically have a simple room, very similar to the House of Burgesses in uh, Williamsburg. And you have these desks with, you know, chairs right there. They're not very ostentatious. And in the center of the room, you have the chair where the vice president would sit. And at this point, uh, there's uh, senators milling about. The vice president sits in his chair. And the funny part is that if you'd been there the day before, this would have looked like a colonial courtroom. There would have been crimson drapes lining the windows, dark green curtains, a scaffolding for an audience. It would have had the tables for the defense and the prosecution. And that's because there actually had been a trial going on in the Senate chambers. It was the impeachment trial of a federal judge. But the decision to turn the Senate chambers into a courtroom was all that of the vice president. And he did it to make a point. Now, the vice president rises from his chair, and years of foiled ambition weigh heavily on his shoulders. He has these piercing dark eyes, and they glow with sadness. And he doesn't realize it, but at this time, Aaron Burr will speak for the last time as an elected official. It's the official end of his career as a politician, but he doesn't know it yet. His election to the vice presidency actually began with so much promise. At that point, if you were the vice president of the United States, eventually you would become president, and he would have succeeded Thomas Jefferson. But... It's actually that election that made him vice president that sowed the seeds of distrust with Jefferson. And eventually Burr finds himself shut out of all decision making in the administration. He's a political non-entity and he has no influence. And then he kills the former secretary of the treasury. Now Hamilton's killer starts to speak and there's a wave of attention that actually moves through the Senate. Now Burr has prepared no notes, so there's no actual written record of this from his perspective. And he begins with what sounds kind of like an apology he hopes his fellow senators will forgive him for their disagreements. He says he's always tried to maintain the dignity of office. And to him, the Senate is, quote, a sanctuary, a citadel of law and order and of liberty. And he hopes they will keep the rules of decorum he fought to establish. Now, like I said, there's no written record because it was impromptu. But the best recollection ends with this, quote, Here in the Senate, if anywhere, will resistance be made to the storms of political frenzy and the silent arts of corruption and the Constitution be destined to ever perish by sacrilegious hands of the demagogue or the usurper which God avert, its aspiring agonies will be witnessed on this floor. And with that, the third vice president of the United States walks out of the chamber and effectively out of politics. And these large doors slam behind him as he walks out, and there's kind of a chill that goes through the room. And suddenly, and this is documented by many witnesses, for no reason, the senators start to weep. And that's their last memory of Aaron Burr as a statesman. Now, from this day on, you're going to know half-truths and rumors that are going to plague his legacy. In posterity, Aaron Burr is always a villain. That's the story that Jefferson, Hamilton, and Washington want you to hear because even their ghosts echo slanders from the past in modern textbooks. But Aaron Burr deserves a second chance. He is the hero of Quebec. He's Colonel Aaron Burr. And in this episode, you'll see a founding father whose ambition rivaled that of even his contemporaries. The difference, however, is a few twists of fate. And what we know about most of the founding fathers is what they want us to know, what they left behind. In the end, Burr's true failure was that he didn't defend his own reputation. So we're going to do what Colonel Burr could never do. We're going to tell his side of the story. Welcome to A History of Losing, a show aimed at redeeming some of the characters our history has declared losers, but we think deserve a second chance to tell their story. If history is written by the winners, who will tell the story of the losers? Episode 1, Buried Alive.
Let's start at the beginning. Aaron Burr was born in 1756 to Aaron Burr Sr. and his mother, Esther Edwards Burr. He also had an older sister, Sarah Sally Burr. And for the first two years in his life, that's about as much family as he's going to have in that immediate uh, unit because his father will die when he's not even a year old of fever. And then his mother, Esther Edwards Burr, will die a year later, also a fever. So when he's two, he's an orphan. It's just he and his sister fending for themselves. But both parents leave behind this powerful legacy, one that would be very difficult to follow even today. His father is the founder of Princeton University. At the time, it was known as the College of New Jersey. And then his mother, her father, so his maternal grandfather, was the Puritan fire and brimstone preacher, Jonathan Edwards, who was well known for his vicious speeches from the pulpit. And... Both of them leave behind this legacy that you can tell as he gets older, he struggles to maintain, but he has this marked streak of independence as a child. Both parents are gone, and at this point, he's gonna live in foster homes and move from foster home to foster home, sometimes with family, sometimes with whoever would take him in. And so he develops this mark of independence. Now there's a story, and this is uh, one of those ones that could be urban legend, but it's about a four-year-old Aaron Bird. He runs away from one of his guardians' home. And uh, he survives for several days on his own, but no one knows this. And when they go to look for him, the aunt and uncle raising him think that he's lost. They just assume he has died. And then four days later, little Aaron returns. Four days gone at four years old. I, I can't even imagine. Now, throughout his early life, we find these letters that his mentors write to him uh, on his resilience, which seems to be only matched by his intelligence and his shrewd reasoning. Now, his uncle will send him to the College of New Jersey. He's supposed to fulfill that family uh, uh, mantle, that one that it was put in front of him. So he goes to Princeton at the age of 13. Now, even at that time, 13 is a very young age to be going to college. Most of the kids were going to college by the time they were 16. And he's four years younger than most of his classmates when he enrolls. And it's not even like nobody sees this because his nickname that first year is Little Burr. Now, in the book Fallen Founder, this is by historian Nancy Eisenberg, she describes the atmosphere of the Princeton where Burr enrolls. And we tend to think of those colonial colleges as um, esteemed uh, places of learning. And they were, no doubt about that. This is the, the foundation of American uh, higher education. But it's not without its glimpses of being like Animal House. Here's a, a passage from her book. She says, quote, Students frequently engaged in boyish pranks. Occasionally, students might steal a plump, fat hen from the neighborhood or parade prostitutes across the campus to upset the straight-laced faculty. And then there were still some ingenious lads who displayed their penchant for discovery by ogling women with their telescopes. So you see uh, uh, the atmosphere is kind of painted there. Yeah, it's college in the colonial era, but they're still boys. They're still young men. But even at this young age, you kind of see the prodigy that Aaron Burr is. And he's seen even by Hamilton years later as a prodigy. Um... While he's in the school, there are two fraternal organizations, right? So this is kind of a, an interesting way to, to foreshadow his future. There's the Whigs and the Cleos, and both organizations are, are debate societies. They're almost like the precursor to fraternities, and they have a sponsor in the faculty. Now, this gives young men a proving ground for debate and oratory, and at first, Burr joins the Whigs. But then he joins the Cleos, and it's documented by uh, numerous classmates that he didn't lose any of his favorability among his classmates by switching sides, but that's going to be one of those uh, uh, terms that's landed on him later in his political life. But we see it right here when he's in college. Now, did anyone really respect Aaron Burr at this time? I mean, we're, I'm talking to you about a guy who's a child prodigy. Uh, but the best way to put it is that in one of those instances, uh, 
he would go towards these leadership roles. And when he was the president of the Cleos, a professor who was the sponsor appeared late to one of the meetings. And Burr, sitting in the chair, looking down at him, pokes fun at the man who is older than him, who is his superior, and all the professor does is laugh, because he just has this effect on people even then. He's charming, but also authoritative, and that's something he'll develop as he gets older. Now, at first, when he gets to Princeton, he studies theology, much like his grandfather. And why wouldn't he? I mean, he is the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, so it's expected that he'll follow in that course. But for whatever reason, and we never really know why, he chooses what I think is kind of the antithesis of religion, which is law. Instead of spiritual learning, he is logically learning. And by 19, he graduates, and he's already studying law. And at that time, you would graduate and then go study uh, an apprentice under another lawyer. And he probably would have moved into the king's courtrooms next, but then Lexington and Concord happen. Now, we know all about the heroes of the Revolution. I mean, they're well documented. They're in our history books from the minute we're kids. But you hear about George Washington. That's obvious. You hear about Patrick Henry. He's sort of a hero of the Revolution. You hear about the great soldiers that fought. Uh, you hear about Rochambeau. All the people that contributed to America becoming its own country. But what you don't know is that Aaron Burr has just as much a claim to routing the British and turning this into a country as anyone. But we don't really talk about that. So... After Lexington and Concord happen, Burt drops out of law training and he joins the Continental Army. And keep in mind at this point, he's a shorter guy. He's five foot seven, and he's got these dark yet sharp eyes with a strong jawline. So men are gravitating towards him and women are very much attracted to him. He takes this opportunity at 19 to head down a warpath. So in the summer of 1775, he followed a childhood friend to General Richard Montgomery's camp for the Continental Army. Now at the time, the rebel forces, and that's what they are, right? This isn't another nation creating war on the British. It is British subjects rebelling against their own people uh, in order to force some sort of arrangement where they get their, you know, they have representation for their taxes or if you believe they wanted to make their own country. This is a rebel force. And these rebel forces under Montgomery are planning an invasion of Quebec. Now, it's part of this larger strategic move that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in hindsight to loosen the British hold on Canada. That's another one of the colonies, the Canadian colonies. So the young revolutionaries hope is that they're going to rally the Canadian colonists to their cause. And one of the heads of the expedition was none other than future traitor, but great general, Benedict Arnold. Now, the plan really speaks to Burr's adventurous side because it includes a march through the wilderness in the middle of winter and so he trains vigorously and he intends to follow the expedition and he's supposed to go north with Arnold's detachment. Arnold's going to go one way, Montgomery the other, and they're going to meet and converge on Quebec. But in the weeks leading up he's struck by a sickness that leaves him bedridden and he still tries to find a way to go and he tells his friends he's headed north. Even though he's got this fever, he's going to go north. Keep in mind it's a fever that was what killed his father and his mother. So here he is in his bed and this is what one of his family friends says quote you will die i know you will die in this undertaking it is impossible for you to endure the fatigue that's from dr james cogswell and yet he ignores the warnings and he goes on this expedition a more than 300 mile trek in the winter through maine and at this point in the canadian assault montgomery has already captured montreal and his troops head north and they're supposed to meet up with arnold's detachment and our friend burr near quebec city now this is what was supposed to happen. They're supposed to converge in an old-fashioned pincer move on the city of Quebec. And keep in mind, Quebec City doesn't have too much importance. But the idea of sacking these two British-held cities in Canada makes it so important because it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a moral victory as well as a, an ability to, to turn the, 
the thoughts of the Canadian colonists against the British. And when they get near, General Benedict Arnold sends the young Burr to signal their arrival to General Montgomery. Now, at this point, Montgomery's never met Burr before, and he takes an instant liking to the young soldier. And when the assault begins, Montgomery wants Burr with him. He's actually right behind him as they lead the charge on Quebec's defenses. Now, there's just one problem with their plan. It's not wrong that they have a pincer surprise attack that's going to happen on Quebec. It's more how Montgomery decided to cover the army. He chose to move during a driving snowstorm. So Montgomery and about 50 men converge on the outward defenses of Quebec City. And they're armed for skirmishes, so they packed light, but they're moving quickly. And the idea is they have to move fast and overtake the blockhouse that's on the exterior walls of, the, uh, of Quebec City. So consider it like a colonial-era special forces group, but with no training. They're mostly farmers and uh, tradesmen who are now soldiers. So when they get within 40 yards of the small defenses, it just goes right to hell. The entire attack. A few Canadians actually notice, this, these are guards, a few Canadians notice the soldiers through the snowfall. And in a fit of confusion, not bravery, they accidentally set off a cannon that just rips grape shot through the line. Instantly, Montgomery's knocked to the ground, and the blast actually knocks out most of the troops hearing for several seconds. It's mass panic. But Burr gets off the ground and rushes over to get Montgomery on his feet. There's only one problem. At this point, General Montgomery's head has been blown off. And Burr looks up, sees the British running for the defenses. They're retreating, and he realizes they still have a chance with that element of surprise to get into Quebec City and overtake it. So he takes up his rifle, he screams for an attack, and the Canadians continue to run, and he's ready to go after him. But suddenly, in the moment, the second-in-command to Montgomery calls for a retreat, and the soldiers stand between Burr and going with the second and those conflicting orders. And those that didn't run away within the grape shot turn around and retreat. Burr is left seemingly alone, and the fire of muskets starts from inside the walls of Quebec City. The armory has been reopened, and it sounds like the troops are ready to defend Quebec City. But he decides before he leaves, and this is legend, no one knows for how long he did this, that he's going to take Montgomery back with him. So Burr picks up General Montgomery and puts his body over his shoulders and walks him back for miles in the snow, taking him back to give him a proper burial. And it's stories like that one that bring him actually to the attention of His Excellency General George Washington. Months after the Quebec debacle, the young soldier finds himself in New York State, summoned by the Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Forces. At this point, the year is 1776, and by the summertime, the Declaration of Independence will be written and adopted. But during the spring of that year, General Washington wanted to meet this young soldier that had been rushing up the ranks. Now, there aren't many notes from the meeting, and I'll be honest with you, having read different histories of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, it appears like many of these men burned their letters later in life to preserve posterity or to create images of themselves or others that we would always take with us. So we don't know. But what we do know is what I've been able to piece together through different recollections of this time. Burr and Washington meet inside a mansion known as Richmond Hill. Ironically, that same mansion one day will be Burr's home in New York. Now, it's right where modern-day Greenwich Village is, if you're familiar with that, and the room is probably warm. They've got a fire going in winter, and the commander-in-chief of the army is going over correspondences, and then this young major comes in with really only one battle under his belt in the room. I mean, these are kind of the opposite ends they're on. One is the leader of the Continental Army, the other is a one-battle soldier. That's Burr. So, we, we have to assume that Washington asks about Quebec, and Burr kind of deflects, because throughout life, he, he doesn't really seek to... Um, 
make himself appear bigger. He just wants people to recognize what he's done for what he's done. He doesn't want to speak for himself. But at this point, a lot of historians believe that Burr might have gone too far because he was always in the opposite viewpoint of Washington. He was always adversarial in terms of how the war should have been done. And a lot of people were second-guessing Washington at this time. You have to remember that this is a war where everyone thinks that the guy in charge who's actually fighting with him might not know what he's doing, but the, the, the people love him. So it's not hard to figure out that Burr was trying to outline new strategies for a war that he's only fought in one battle for. And he kind of mistakes Washington's easygoing, uh, amenable nature to be, you know, foolish or stupid. Or he, th- he thinks that it's, it's welcoming. But we know that two weeks later, without any word, Burr is sent off somewhere else. And it's probably because he tried to tell Washington what to do. Now, it said it was a mutual decision to part ways. Burr didn't want to be an aide, and Washington didn't want the advice of a boy who'd been studying the life and times of Jesus Christ several years before, and now was suddenly a military genius because of one battle that, frankly, they lost. So, Washington sends him to serve as an aide-de-camp to General Israel Putnam in New York. So, at this stage in his life, under General Putnam, you're going to get a look at Burr the politician. And I know it sounds abstract, but at this point, he's recruiting troops for Putnam, he's proposing strategies, and he's learning how to work out a well-oiled machine to make these soldiers disciplined. And he finds himself, in one instance, insubordinate to a superior again, but this time he's probably right. In July, the rebels declare independence from the Empire, and the British respond the way the British should respond. They send a massive-sized fleet to deal with these wild colonists. So by September of 1776, the British are finally landing in the colony of New York, and General William Howe is the one who is leading these troops. Howe famously is believed to have been a Patriot sympathizer along with his brother, but at this instance, all we know is the troops are landing in New York, and all the Americans need to get out because they cannot stand up to this well-oiled machine that is the British Army. They're not ready yet. But while most of the brigades have left the city, there is one, a contingent of troops under Colonel Gold Selleck Silliman left on Manhattan. Silliman isn't a particularly noteworthy historical figure other than he gets captured later on in the war, but this is a pretty significant event for several reasons. Now, during the advance of the British, Silliman's brigade sits in this hopeless position. It's an area where they've made a fort out of basically the earth there. It's Bayard's Hill Redoubt. So these walls are made of mud essentially and it's not a great defensive position anyway and now it's the only american position for miles so putnam sends burr to go find them now there's a reason why he sent burr burr during his recruiting trips and probably his entertainment trips because burr did like the party that's pretty well documented by both his allies and his enemies he knows his way around manhattan specifically he's actually been around bayard's hill redoubt so he finds Silliman's brigade and he says, listen, we'll take this route out. And Silliman says, no. And Burr pleads. And Silliman says, I'm staying here and I'm fighting to the last man. So this is where Burr shows kind of his cunning. He rides out from the fort and then comes back a few hours later and he says, I've got new orders. Just came from General Putnam. He says, we have to go and you were ordered to go now. And maybe Silliman listens and believes Maybe he's realized it is hopeless and they fight to the last man. They're all going to die. For whatever reason, he listens to Burr and follows Burr out. Now, not much older than 20 at this point, Burr is leading these troops through hidden paths and abandoned roads. And as promised to General Putnam, he brings everyone back alive. Now, here's a strange twist of fate. Somewhere walking in the lines of retreating troops is one young artillery captain 
Alexander Hamilton. No one can say for sure if Burr remembered seeing Hamilton or Hamilton remembered this being the first time they saw Burr, but according to the records and according to most of the stories there, somewhere among those brigades was Alexander Hamilton. So it's only fitting that the man who would end his life down the line is the man who possibly saved his life during the outset of the American Revolution. And it's stories like this, of him saving this brigade, that give him a healthy resume of courage. But when we trace back to what Burr has done, the way he's treated his superiors is the reason he doesn't move up the chain of command as quickly as others. Unlike his contemporaries, they keep their mouths shut, they say, yes, sir, General Washington, and they advance. But more appropriately, he actually writes to General Washington in letters, and it's pretty defiant in the letters. Now, obviously, this is uh, tame compared to how we would speak ill to a superior today, but he says, The late date of his appointment subjects him to the command of men who were younger in the service and junior officers in the last campaign. That's what he says about his appointment when he finally does get one. So he appears not even grateful then. But Washington gives him the commission of a unit known as the Malcolms. And this is after 1776, as we're getting into 1777. Now, <clears throat> the Malcolms are in charge of protecting the back door to the American forts through the southeastern New York. So it's a military line that has to be held. It's the back door to the revolution. And if the Malcolms fail, the American war effort would fail. I mean, it'd be severely compromised, at the least failed at the worst. In July of 1777, newly minted Colonel Burr rides out to meet his new troops. And what he finds is an undisciplined, inexperienced, glorified militia. Their commander is a merchant named William Malcolm, and it may have simply been his patriotic duty that he raised this militia to begin with. He actually has no interest in military command. In fact, the quote is, You shall have the honor of disciplining and fighting this regiment while I will be its father. And then he hands him over, and Malcolm washes his hands of the affair. So now is kind of the part where you have to put your money where your mouth is if you're Aaron Burr. Because are you going to be a good leader? You've been complaining about how Washington's not a good leader. You've been complaining about uh, Silliman. You've been second-guessing everyone. What kind of commander is Aaron Burr? We turn to one of the biographers. Uh, it's a nice history of Burr by Milton Lomask. And in his biography of Burr, he said of Burr's disciplinary skills, he instituted a draconian regime lightened by a close attention to the comforts of his men and an often exhibited a willingness to care for their needs out of his own pockets. What he's basically saying, and this is something Burr will fight for well after the war ends, he spends his own inheritance on his men. When there's not enough money coming from the Continental Congress, Burr is going to pay for their wages, pay for their clothing, pay for their food. It's a generosity Burr will show his entire life. It's probably why he runs out of money so quickly, other than the fact that he's just not good with money. But as far as anyone can tell, those methods worked because the Malcolms grow in strength tactics, and they also grow in their admiration for young Burr, but they've not fought in a battle yet. So by September of 1777, just a few months after, Burr gets this report from the scouts that a marauding band of loyalists, basically an unorganized militia of their own, is terrorizing farmlands in northern New Jersey. And as they come closer to the Malcolm's line, General Putnam actually issues a retreat order to Burr. He doesn't want to lose soldiers. Um, but Burr rejects the order. What did you expect? He tells Putnam he's not going to run from an enemy he hasn't seen yet. So he takes the Malcolm's south of the line. So Burr takes the Malcolms further south, beyond the line they're supposed to protect, and eventually, as he gets south and he gets into New Jersey, he discovers one of the main attachments of loyalists, these, this makeshift militia, if you will. So he's marched the Malcolms all day, and at night, by himself, he goes through the forest to come to this loyalist outpost. He watches the two guards standing watch, then he goes back and he wakes the Malcolms up. Now, as the story goes, Burr takes a small detachment through the woods, 
once again a quick light infantry he's going to use the same tactics he was going to use on quebec city and he leads the charge but this time he only finds one sentinel holding his post and he leaps through the trees levels the first shot and boom down goes the guard the other 30 officers and soldiers at the outpost surrender on the spot and then colonel burr marches the spoils of war back to the malcolm's line in new york successful now this has twofold effect number one the Loyalists didn't see it coming, so that's the end of this Loyalist group that's been marauding through New Jersey. They actually abandon their movements and they leave the area, and Burr becomes this local hero in New Jersey. There's really no time to enjoy the victory because their next assignment is to be part of what's going to be an attack on Philadelphia by the Commander-in-Chief, and as they get the call up, they also get called into those deadly winter quarters in the winter of 1777. Burr finds himself in the Malcolms at Valley Forge. <laughs> 